0: doesn't know. I'm sure it was my dad that said that, and I'm also sure that it applies to women. That is why I invite guests onto my show that have expertise in different areas also related to personal finance. I feel it's important to note that the opinions of these professionals are not necessarily the opinions of McNamara Financial or any of its advisors. As long as we are on the subject of disclosure, I should note that while we may discuss investments and or markets on this show, that past performance is not indicative of future results. Thanks for tuning in.
1: Good morning. I'm Alyssa McNamara-Reed. You're listening to McNamara on Money. Happy weekend, everybody. Happy Saturday morning. Uh, You're listening again to McNamara on Money. I think I already said that. Perhaps it's time for another cup of coffee, but no worries. I've got it right here in front of me. That was just free Uh, advertising. (laughs) Yes. Uh, That's my husband and business partner, Kirk Reed. Looks like he showed up in the studio right on time. That was like 10 seconds before coming on air. So nice timing there. Good morning. Um, And we have a fantastic guest this morning. We have Danielle Van S. of DGVE Law. Uh, Good morning, Danielle. Thanks so much again for being here. I know you're not a morning person, but you look quite perky and ready to go. So thanks so much. much. Thank you for having me. So uh, Danielle is an estate planning attorney and she's joining us this morning. Um, You've been on our show several times before. I know we've roped you into this uh, early weekend morning thing before. You're such a good sport about it. Um, but we were talking this morning about, um, I was calling it the ins and outs of settling an estate. So basically the logistics and the administration uh, and the work that goes into settling someone's finances and their estate after they pass. I, this is something that I'm actually quite eager to learn more about. Uh, we, we have, you know, I've known a lot of people that have gone through this and are going through this now. And I know that it's just the type of thing that just makes your head spin. There's so much to do. It's a lot of work for people. Um, It's a great, we're going to have discussions today about you know the the benefits of planning in advance for this type of thing, which I think is incredibly important. Um, And I know you're going to chime in there as well. So we're talking about settling estates. I think this is going to be a really great topic. So many people go through this. Um, So thank you again, Danielle, for being here. You can check out Danielle's firm at dgvelaw.com. Danielle, do you want to just give like a a minute or so, um, you know, bio background? just a little bit about yourself.
2: Sure, thank you. So I am the sole attorney at DGVE Law in Hingham. I have a great team of support staff and we concentrate exclusively in the areas of wills, trusts and estates and probate and trust administration. So thank you for having me on today. I'm happy to help uh, chat about this topic.
1: Yeah, good, you're welcome. I've just, I've recently met a few people in the last um, just month. It's just been busy for people, you know, coming in, um, and you know, family members have passed, and they're going through this, you know, this process, and um, so it was just like sort of top of mind. And I was like, oh yeah, Danielle's coming on, let's do this. So, so thanks again for being here. So, um, I was thanking Danielle off air for putting together um, an outline for this because, of course, I have questions and and you know, put together some bullet points, but. Um, Like like I said, for me, this whole thing is very daunting and I didn't even know where to start in terms of having this conversation. Um, So I appreciate you putting together the outline. So you had mentioned um, a good starting point was just, you know, like the things, what do you need to, like the first things you need to do before maybe you even hire an attorney. Um, Do you need to hire an attorney? You know, things to think about fairly soon after someone passes you know it doesn't have to be immediate of course there's the period of grievance and all that um but what are what are the first steps like what are the first things that you recommend that people think
0: about
2: Right, well, and let me just add Alyssa that, um as you know, my little brother passed away last April. So I have been doing this for clients for a number of years, but now I'm also chin deep in this um personally. So I have the perspective yeah. on both ends of that to contribute. And I can honestly say that the very first steps um are intimidating if you don't know where to begin and particularly when you're in the middle of grieving. So I think there's a big difference when you know that this is coming or when it's a big surprise. Um, So it depends how much access a person has to the information about the person who died. We often say decedent, which sounds really cold, but that's, you know, kind of the the word yeah. on all the legal forms. And it's it's tough sometimes to use the terminology involved in this process. And I think that's something to note also right off the top that um, even just the words listed on forms or the types of conversations that you have to have when you pick up the phone can be the words can choke in your mouth a little bit when you're trying to spit them out. So that's step one is how much information did you have about the decedent, about the person who died? Do you have access to the paperwork that they had? Do you have access to the home? Um, Is there somebody else who's going to be involved? There are so many factors just before you ever get to, who do I call to help? Do I need a lawyer or any of that? Um, So go ahead. Yeah, no, go ahead. Oh, I was gonna, so, so,
1: I, I think one thing to do is for us to talk about if, you know, by the way, what you said about that term decedent is, is, I never really thought about it like that. I've been lucky enough in my life where I haven't had anyone super close to me pass away, so I haven't been through this uh, personally as you have. Um, and I never really thought about that word being so cold. But now that you say that, yeah, um, I you know I use that word in in my business. You know, of course we see it on paper all the time, and. and right. Um, But yeah, that's, it's very, it's not very personal, is it? Yeah, that's that's terrible. I'm gonna be much more sensitive about using that word now going forward.
2: Yeah, I think Um, that's really important. And that goes, sorry about the printer noise behind me going off all of a sudden by itself. Uh, (laughs) I I think that's important in terms of deciding who to work with and how to proceed as step one, how close are you to the matter? Are you the right person to be taking steps to act? Do you have agreement from all of the other family members or other people that are involved or might have the right to be involved. Um, and then once you've determined that you are in fact the right person finding somebody who will be compassionate and guide you through the process, understanding that for you, it really is deeply personal when you're on the um, the administrating end of things, even though for you and for me professionally, we talk about this all day, every day. Um, we just have to keep that sensitivity in mind yeah. for our clients and be aware of where they're coming from mentally when they call us.
3: Uh, did- Danielle, I, uh, well, first of all, I don't think I knew about your brother. So very sorry to hear about that. I don't, I don't think I knew about that. Um, I, I guess I had a question about, um, you know, what we're you talking about, like who, you know, who should be involved or who's allowed to be involved. And I guess, you know, the question that popped into my head, well, you know, what if somebody dies and they don't have a will and, you know, and they don't have, you know, they don't have a uh, an executor or, or whatever, whatever they call it these days, you know, personal representative. How, could, you, could you maybe talk about that process? Like if there's nothing in place?
2: Oh, yes. I could talk about that for a long time. Okay. Yeah, how much time do we have? We have 16 minutes before our break. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> All right. So um, if someone dies with a will, um, we call that dying test date with a a will, a last will and testament in place. If somebody dies without a will in place, we call that dying intestate. And so if someone managed to put a will together, that person can appoint someone to serve as his or her personal representative, which is the term since 2012 here in Massachusetts, formerly called executor for a man and executrix for a woman, but that's old school. So we let that go. So it's um, personal representative for everyone now. And that is the person that has been appointed under a will One of the things that I find a lot of my friends who've been through this and and clients who call it first are confused about is that they'll think they have the authority to begin acting immediately because they've been appointed in a will. Okay, But the authority really doesn't come until the court issues you what we call letters of authority or letters testamentary. Um, So until you get those letters, you can take action if you think that really you are the right person to be acting and no one's going to contest that or fight about it. But the authority and the authority once it's issued by the court will date back to those actions that you took if you took them rightfully. Um, but just the fact that you've been named in a will does not give you access to a bank account, for example. And so that often confuses people. I hear people say all the time, well, you know, I had been acting as my mom's uh, power of attorney. Really they mean they've been serving as the attorney in fact, under mom's power of attorney. And now they think that they can use that authority after mom has died and they find out they can't. And so then the person will say, well, I don't understand. I'm, I'm appointed to serve as personal representative under the will well, that's true, but first the will has to go to court. Um,
1: So what's the process there? Like, do you just literally file a copy of the will with the local court? There's some form that you fill out looking for
2: the letters testamentary? So that all depends to sound like We, we can file a copy. It absolutely must be the original will. And so no. that's step one. Um, and that can cause problems. And no. we do Zoom hearings nowadays. Um, you absolutely have to have the original hand signed will. It cannot be a copy of the will. If you don't have the original will and you try to put a copy in, you have to go through all sorts of extra steps to prove that that was the original and final will, a true representation, and it represents what the person intended. So that's step one is wherever that original will is, that's key. And oftentimes people think they have the original and then Hmm. We see it, you know, we we get hands on it and realize no, this wasn't actually the original, this was a copy. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say in the before times, before COVID, probably once a month there would be an email circulated through the local bar associations looking for.
1: Oh, did we lose Danielle? I was trying to figure out if I lost my yeah. my own data feed or if we lost Danielle.
3: Might just be Danielle. I thought it was interesting yeah. that she was referring to that as the "before times." I haven't heard that uh, that term before.
1: Before COVID, well, just yeah. you know, COVID has now been. Yeah. almost... I know. Almost a year, right? So, I know. Um, yeah. All right. Well, we're talking with Danielle Van S., DGVE Law, uh, of DGVE Law in Hingham. She's an estate planning attorney. She focuses her business on wills, trusts, and estates. And we're talking about the ins and outs of settling an estate this morning. <laughs> we were just filling time while we waited for your Wi Fi connection there, Danielle. No, no worries. You oh, you're back. Welcome back. Um, where did she leave off, Kirk? Uh,
3: you were saying uh, about in you know in the and, and I was commenting Danielle about you was calling the in the before times and yeah, you know before, and, uh, <laughs> and so yeah so well, okay
1: the, ori- so, the original will yeah
3: but now na- yeah but yeah. now you're saying yeah because when it's if it's virtual whatever it's like how do you show that it's if it's true and authentic and uh, you know uh, original uh, and the other the other question that popped into my head after you know when you when you uh, stepped out of there was you know how, yeah, how do you know that somebody didn't didn't there isn't another one you know a more a more recent yeah. one uh, how do you I mean how do you know that and prove that and that's that's yeah. that seems to me mind boggling about how how you can prove all that that's
2: what courts are for I guess right so, yeah
1: yeah
3: yeah
2: that's right and the the process of administering an estate particularly if it's a will based. Plan by which I mean, there's no trust involved and everything does have to go through the court process. Then even though it can be really slow and frustrating and expensive um, and we can gripe about it and people say they want to avoid it. And I would tend to agree with them. Uh, it really does serve a protective function to make sure that the will that gets put into the court and the distributions out of the estate really do go to the right people in the right way at the right time. So it does serve a a good public service to go through that process. Um, In terms of your question, Alyssa, how do you know how to proceed? Step one is having the original will if there is one if there is one. And then you have to look at all of the assets. So that's the hardest part is you can't just take the will and file it. You have to find out what is there. Um, So you have to complete the, the necessary forms to file with the probate court. And you have to declare what was the value of all of the personal property of the decedent? What was the value of all the real estate in the decedent's name? Um, What other bank accounts, brokerage accounts, what, what were all of the assets that they had that were titled in the name of the person who died? And depending on the total dollar value of all that, then there are different ways that you can proceed.
1: Uh, so right you need a not. so you need a full accounting of all the assets before you can even be officially appointed as personal representative. You can't even get those letters testamentary. Well, no, not
2: necessarily. You have have a clue about what there is way to go forward. If you don't, the risk is if you, it's best if you can try to get as much of that information as possible upfront, because if you think that you can proceed with um, a smaller administration, like for example, there's a process called a voluntary administration when the total amount of all of the assets in the decedent's name were $25,000 or less, excluding Um, Then there's kind of a process which may or may not be appropriate under the circumstances. If we have an original will and we know the assets exceed $25,000, we're probably going to go down a different route. And if we can't find an original will, we definitely have to go down a different route. So step one is really trying to figure out what were the assets, where were they, whose name were they in. And so that's where I started is how much access do you have to that information? It's very different yeah. when it's a surviving spouse who lives in the home and the paperwork's right there than when it's Somebody who lived, you know, in another state or another home far away, especially during COVID, to try to enter the home and travel and get that paperwork can be really difficult right now. Yeah, and you don't so have authority are- to request the paperwork without the authority from the court. Yeah.
1: So what, so if someone's like, you know, the adult child and, you know, mom or dad pass away and, and and it was just mom or dad, right? So what what can you do at that time other than go check the mail and start waiting for statements of like, you know, financial accounts to show up unless mom or dad had been prepared, of course, and you were um, looped into the finances before they passed? Or what do people do? Just wait for mail if, if they're not looped in? Yes. Yeah. Yes. One, yeah. one of the things that we try to do as our clients age, you know, and, and get into maybe their seventies and eighties and beyond is, you know, have those conversations regarding, you know, do you want one of your adult sons or daughters to, what's Kirk showing me? Is that a bug on the Zoom? Oh my God! There's a, we're not recording uh, this Zoom right now.
3: There's, there's a, there's a stink bug in the uh, studio. Oh, gross.
1: Here. Gross. <laughs> it's just like being at home. I know. <laughs> um yeah so one of the conversations that we try to facilitate as our clients get a, a bit older is you know the, do you want one of your adult children you know to be involved in the meetings and to just you know be aware of what are the assets that exist certainly can be helpful um you know can be helpful you know during mom or dad's life and in terms of helping them with the finances but also clearly after death because like what else do you do and especially like you mentioned if you know mom lived in Florida for example and you're up here in New England and what do you do fly down there and check the mail and can you even forward the mail if you if you're not right officially the personal representative
2: probably can't exactly right to be able to be able to get that information you have to have physical access to the information and if you don't then you do the best you can do to find out what there was um make your best guess to the court and you request your authority to act and once the court issues that authority to act then you can take that to the post office and start forwarding the decedent's mail to you so that then you just wait and find out what comes in and what was there. Um, Obviously the better plan is to have that all really well organized before you die so that you're not putting the people you love in the position of not having any of that information and and really being stuck for months waiting. Um, Some of those statements come monthly, but lots of them come quarterly. Quarterly and And some of them, some of them,
1: yeah, I was gonna say
2: some of them just go to email these days and maybe right. get caught in a spam filter and- And you need uh, two-factor authentication. So even if you had passwords, if you don't have access mm-hmm. to the device that's issuing the, the two-factor authentication code, yeah. then you're stuck. Yeah. So oh. It's really important to, um, on, the, on the preparation side, have your affairs in order and don't leave the people that you love in the position of trying to go through a mystery really after that. Yeah.
3: Danielle, uh, I had a question about, um, you know, early mentioned if, you know, somebody, maybe it's a, you know, a son or a daughter or somebody feels that, you know, they absolutely have the authority to be, you know, the person and, and to make these decisions and maybe start taking some action. And, and if, you know, if, I mean, if they do something that it turns out they shouldn't have, I mean, and and, the, and they weren't the person, I mean, is, are there are there is there any liability there?
2: Yes, that's a great question, and so that's one of the first things that we counsel our clients on. Here is that the the person who is willing to step up and serve as personal representative needs to be aware that there is personal liability that can attach to the person acting. So step one is, are you the appropriate person to be acting? And there are um, there are there's a hierarchy that determines that. So if there is a will, it's the person appointed in the will that would have that authority, regardless of the personal relationships or um, mm-hmm. family relationships. If there isn't a will, then it's statutory. And so it goes to you know parents or spouses or siblings in a particular order, depending on the circumstances and the nature of the family. And if multiple people have competing rights, So if they have equal rights to be serving, they either all have to agree or there's something for a judge to decide. So Mm -hmm. it would be important for someone to understand to not just start taking action and certainly not start taking items and distributing them, whether personal property or cash or, you know, safe deposit boxes, anything. Um, We always say, just pause. You have to pause first. You can't just start taking action. You really need to understand whether you have the right to do those things first.
1: So Danielle, I know there's a hierarchy regarding where how assets are distributed after death if, if there's no will. Um, you're saying there's also a hierarchy in terms of who is appointed the personal representative if there's no will appointing someone, but can someone um, can someone in the family you know kind of raise their hand and be like, well, I'm an attorney and even if the hierarchy doesn't point to me, I can certainly administer this estate. they can, can, they, they can apply through the courts, right to be the personal representative um, and, and if the fam- either the family can agree as you said or the court can approve that right. So anyone can like kind of raise their hand and.
2: I don't know how many people are raising their hand to do that. It is a lot of work, but. Well, that's um, right. And so that's that's step one consideration is, do you really understand what you're getting into? What this is gonna take? Do you have the bandwidth and the capability to be doing this? It's much more involved than most people would expect. It takes longer, Um, but yes, anybody can petition for appointment, but there is a statutory priority for appointment if there's no appointment under the will. And even if there is, people can decline to serve yeah so that happens a lot if um parents often sorry we have to we have a couple minutes. That's that a there should be. Um, parents often will say that they would like their children for example, to serve together. So they'll say, I love my mm-hmm. kids equally and I want you know my son and my daughter to serve jointly together and they should do everything together. Well, oftentimes that doesn't make sense. Now you're yeah. requiring two hard copy signatures of everything and everybody has to sign off and, and be participating in every meeting. Um, it's often much more convenient to have one person serving. So, it's the case that sometimes a sibling will say, Okay, I decline to serve, and I'll allow my sibling to serve because she's closer to the attorney or to the court or whatever the situation is that makes it practically make more sense. Um, Yeah. It's not expressed through appointment as personal representative, or it shouldn't be.
3: I feel, yeah, but I feel like sometimes, you know, and I've seen this with people that we've known. And personally, if there's two people or whatever, you know, it's, you know, uh, brother and sister, and, but if one person is appointed, you know, by the parents, then the other person feels left out and there might be some division there. And, you know, so that, it, you know, it's, it's tough to figure out the exact right way to, to make everybody happy, uh, but also, but also be efficient. <laughs> um,
2: yeah. So I think it goes to the planning end and setting expectations. And that's something that we concentrate on a lot in my practice. One of the things we do is is to a letter to the person who's serving in terms of what the expectations on him or her are, and then also a letter to all of the other people involved. Here's that's, what that's, you expect, here's yeah. what and here's why.
1: That's yeah. nice, communication is so key to the family members that are not the personal representative because they get nervous, they wanna know about the money. We're gonna continue this discussion. You're listening to McNamara on Money. We're talking with Danielle Van a estate planning attorney, about the ins and outs of settling an estate. And we're gonna, just gonna take a break and we'll be right back. And we're back. You're listening to McNamara on Money. I'm Alyssa McNamara-Reed, joined this morning by my husband and business partner, Kirk Reed, uh, and estate planning attorney, Danielle Van S. of DGVELaw.com. (laughs) <laughs> that's your web address, DGVE Law um, in downtown and or Hingham Square. I guess we call that Hingham Square. Right. Um, and her website for more information about her firm is dgvelaw.com. I always just want to throw that .com right in there, but that's good advertising for you. People really know where to find you. <laughs> um, so thanks again for uh, being with us this morning, Danielle. Uh, we're talking about the ins and outs of estate administration. I was calling it like settling an estate, very... Um, complicated, confusing, stressful process for families after someone passes, not to mention of course the the grief that comes after someone passes. So um, we're just walking people through uh, some of the logistics, I guess, regarding this, where to start, what to do, things to think about. And of course, we're gonna touch on all the reasons why planning in advance for this can be um, quite a stress relief. So uh, thanks again for being here. So um, we've just been talking about like kind of the first steps you know, where do you start? And and really number one is figuring out who's going to be the personal representative, um, whether they're, you know, either appointed in the will or if there's no will, um, you know, either having the courts appoint someone or having the family agree um, to appoint someone and, or have a, have the family agree who the court can appoint? I guess is the right way to say that. Yeah. Um, so once, what's the? How long does it take for someone to be officially appointed and to get those letters testamentary? You had another word for the letters of testamentary. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh,
2: letters of authority or letters, letters of authority or okay. just plain letters. Um, oh, okay. Who's talking? Yeah. So. That's a great question, Alyssa. And again, in the before times, I would have told you somewhere around four to six weeks. Okay. Right now, the courts are so overburdened and they're suffering from shutdowns and, and closures and all of the challenges that they're having. That's a, a big shift that they had that was not able to turn on a dime the way that a smaller um, yeah. little office like mine was in terms of moving to fully remote practice and doing things like that. So the courts have really been struggling under the circumstances the timing of things and they necessarily have to prioritize emergencies. So what that means in effect is that things that are not emergencies sometimes are quite delayed right now. Also, they are working remotely and very few people in person, so we can file electronically into the courts, um, but then we have to still send an original will. And so there have been challenges. Um, I had on one matter an original will that the court received and signed for, and we got the return certified mail slip, but the court couldn't locate the will. And so then that delayed things months. Um, I had another one where we filed in August, there had to be a hearing. I had a hearing um, maybe in December and they forgot to issue the letters and we were left calling and emailing and going to the virtual registry and waiting and waiting. And we finally just got the letters. So um, it's just the nature of the beast right now with COVID and having things some Visit hard copy in person at the registry or at the probate court, um, and other things fully electronic. And who's responsible for which end of it? And it's just really hard right now. So it could take months before someone gets oh. the authority in hand to be able to even access any of the information to even find out what there is, or to have the authority to act. And in the meantime, um, you know, checks expire. If it takes three months, somebody's yeah. receiving a check for a deposit into an estate account and the check expires um, or bills are piling up and and people are getting really nervous. So that was one of the, the questions that you had, I think was, what do you do when there are bills that need to get paid right away? And this is something that we have to explain to our clients all the time. We often have, you know, really responsible, diligent, good, good egg clients that wanna do the right thing and pay the bills. But they can't because we don't know what order bills need to get paid in. So we first have to wait and see what all of the bills are and where all the assets are. And so often there are surprises with all of that. So so we so always the, have to say, please don't pay bills yet.
1: Okay, I was going to say, should yeah, should the family just be sitting on bills that come in for that family member who's passed and and. and maybe not worry about like, you know, what about late fees? Are those assessed when someone passes? Are those types of things generally waived in these situations, especially now during COVID? No,
2: (laughs) 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 I know it'd be nice. Yeah. Um No, unfortunately, they're often not waived and there are mm. late fees and penalties that can be assessed. However, um, it really makes a difference, the circumstances. You know, lawyers get a bad rap for saying it depends, but it really does. Are yeah. you sure that there are sufficient assets to pay those bills or might there not be enough assets to pay all of those bills? Um, we certainly don't want our clients going out of pocket and paying for things themselves that they might never get reimbursed for if there aren't sufficient assets to reimburse them out of the estate and there's a priority in terms of what what bills have to get paid um so for example you know the fees related to the actual administration come off the top and um, fees related to paying taxes and if it were necessary to reimburse mass health for any payments made on behalf of the person who died to provide for their health care before they died um, all of those things come well in advance of paying for example credit card bills. Okay. or other things like that. It might be necessary for example, that utility bills get paid out of sale of real estate later that they're not gonna get paid out of um, you know, cash that's sitting in an account. So, so first we have to know yeah. what we're dealing with before we start paying bills or distributing assets out. And it's really important that people understand that they really need to wait and gather information before they do that. And that can be tricky when it goes back to those expectations for everybody involved.
1: Okay, so maybe start like either making a list or generating a spreadsheet of bills that are coming in, and and then the, you know, the attorney can help you prioritize. Um, but it sounds like you're saying never pay an expense of the, um, not of never, the maybe not never, but generally <laughs> speaking, you're you're not going to want to pay an expense of the decedent out of your own pocket, right? And assume that you're going to be reimbursed. Is that is that right?
2: Unless it's absolutely necessary. So. Um, you know and it comes back to whether we're talking about a probate or a trust administration also so it depends but where this conversation is more steered toward the the probate side of things where there is not a trust involved Um, if for example you are going to step up and serve as the personal representative and you are going to be responsible for safeguarding the property of the decedent like the house for example and there's a roof leak and the roof starts to leak terribly and it's going to cause all sorts of damage that would be more expensive to repair, maybe you need to pay for that roof leak right away to stop the damage and hope you get reimbursed for it later. So it really depends on the circumstances involved. Um, If you're sure that there's gonna be enough money, maybe it's okay to pay it. If you're not, maybe wait. So one of the things that we do in my practice is we don't expect our clients to know any of this, understand any of the words or know where to start. And that's what we tell them right at the outset is you don't need to know anything to start. (laughs) Just let us help you. And so one of the things that we do is give them the spreadsheet. We don't expect them to figure out how to go create it. And if they have the ability to use an electronic spreadsheet, we'll give it to them. Here you go, start tracking all these things in this way. If they don't, we'll talk to them about keeping a notebook and and how to organize a notebook to do it by hand on paper if need be. So it's it's a discussion that involves the person who's going to be serving and their capabilities and the decedent and their assets and the circumstances and where everything is. And so that's why it all always depends.
3: Uh, Danielle, I had a question. So this is, you know, one that pertains to our business and is all, you know, comes up. And, you know, we're talking about You know the 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 lag that you know the lag time that occurs with this, and you know what happens when somebody you know uh, a decedent has you know assets in the stock market, you know something that's very volatile, going up, going down, and you know who you know who is responsible for. you know, managing that and making sure that, you know, appropriate steps are being taken, you know, because to me, I always, I feel like there's some liability on us, you know, as the financial Mm -hmm. advisor, but I don't know where we fall in line as far as, you know, are we the, are we the end of the line or, or is it, or is it the personal representative as far as, you know, when to liquidate, you know, when to keep it invested, you know, that's a, that's a gray area for me.
1: Yeah, it's, and it's tough because if they're not officially appointed as personal representative or, you know, it, or if or maybe they're one of the beneficiaries of a retirement account, but the account isn't divided yet, you know, we can't, we can't take instruction from them technically, but it's a great area for us as well um, in terms of what to do and, and liability. So, yeah, what's your legal there opinion? There's a lot on of
2: that? liability on the personal representative as well. So, um, ideally, in every estate administration situation, there's a conversation happening between the financial advisor and the attorney and the accountant so that you're looking at all of the different possible ins and outs of everything. Um, But it really needs to be a strategy that takes into account the taxes and the timing of the markets and all of the total assets of the estate and the beneficiaries and all of that. So um, it's always going to depend, but yes, there is potential liability if a personal representative neglects to pay attention to something like that.
3: Yeah, and and I... (laughs) I mean maybe I'm maybe I'm misremembering or maybe this was just my own uh the voice inside my head but I feel like I've had conversations in the past with with clients or or beneficiaries of clients and when I and I will you know I will say to them you know we really should be talking to the estate attorney about what to do here and they will say well that's going to cost me money so let's just do mm-hmm. something and I'm like whoa I don't like that um <laughs> do, you, do you have any take on that or can you um
2: Wow. So um, that's so sad to me that people are so afraid of being nickel and dimed that they wouldn't ask for the legal advice that they're supposed to be receiving. Um, One of the things that we do again in my practice is right at the outset is explain to our clients the steps that they can take that will help keep their fees down. So we understand that clients are going to be nervous about the expenses involved and the expenses in the beginning of these administrations are significant. There's kind of a lot of money that goes out right away because it's necessary to pay court filing fees and publication of notice fees that the court requires. And um, so the fees can, you can approach $1,000 before blinking an eye just on all the filing fees. So for the person who's out of pocket waiting to get reimbursed for those fees, if they didn't already have access to the assets, that can be intimidating for sure. So we'll explain to our clients um just basic steps that that if they are responsive to us quickly, you know while we have the file on our desk, while we're thinking about it, if they can get the information back to us pretty soon instead of waiting a month to get it back to us, that's going to help. If they can batch their questions and send us a couple of questions at a time so that every time they have a question we don't have to go pull the file and refresh our, our memories about you know the circumstances of that particular case, that's helpful. Um, But an attorney that's doing it right, I would think is leveraging her or his team um, so that it's not at an attorney's hourly rate Mm -hmm. that all of the work is happening, that the the paralegal and legal assistant are also helping at their hourly rates, which also helps to keep the cost down. But an attorney and an accountant and there should be involved with those types of questions for sure. Yeah, that doesn't sound like a very
1: good client, Kirk. You <laughs> to second, I uh, guess, that relationship. Um, Danielle, we had a question come in from um, a listener regarding, we were talking a little bit ago about expenses, um, uh, paying expenses out of pocket, et cetera, of, of the decedent. Um, what, the question is, what happens when there is an estate that has significant debt, perhaps debt that exceeds assets?
2: So we call that an insolvent estate. Um, And that gets really tricky. And so before anybody would take action, that's why I'm saying it's really important to try as best you possibly can to get a sense of what the assets of the estate are. Sometimes you might not even wanna be filing. Um, Once you open that up, you're kind of stuck with it. So, um, and and this is a relatively new thing in Massachusetts under the Massachusetts Uniform Probate Code. So so new in fact, that a couple of years back, um, I had one of these, we didn't realize the estate was insolvent at the outset, Um, but the particular chapter in the Uniform um, Probate Code procedural manual for how to proceed with an insolvent estate, Actually said reserved for future use. That was the guidance for how to proceed in practice.
1: What does what what that? What does
2: that mean? It means. By the way, that sounds exist, like really. Yeah.
1: That sounds like really boring reading. That
2: manual. Yeah. Well, that's why my kids say that they don't want to listen to me or my lawyer husband talk because it's so boring. Okay. Um, but yes, it, the it was such a new process. There wasn't clear there wasn't guidance a, there wasn't about a how to proceed. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> it wasn't even that we didn't know how to proceed. It's that the courts weren't quite sure to do with it. Um,
3: in, in effect, in effect, it was a uh, TBD.
2: <laughs> it, it was, yeah. it was. Um, and and when I went to court on a hearing on one of those, the, the clerk said, thank you so much for bringing this to our attention. We had a staff meeting to talk about how to move forward on these going forward. So um, anyway, we live and learn, but um, but that's why it's really important to understand what the assets are at the outset. Mm-hmm. There's, there shouldn't be personal liability on the family members if they're not named as joint owners on different accounts or, um, if, you know, if credit cards as jointly liable for the debts and things like that. So it's always very fact specific. What are the assets? Whose name is on it? What are the debts? In what order do they need to get paid and so forth? One of the questions um, that you had asked Alyssa was about kids, for example, adult children being named as co-owners on bank accounts with parents. And mm-hmm. this is something that we often hear our clients say, well, oh, I'll just add my son that lives nearby to my bank account, for example, Mm. so that he can just manage things. So he doesn't have any trouble with this, or I'll just make my life insurance policy payable to the one child that I want to manage everything so they can use it to do all this stuff. Mm. But it doesn't quite work that way. Essentially what you're doing is you're making a gift of those assets to the person or leaving the inheritance to that person. And then that person has to turn around and use money that's now theirs to go and pay all the bills. So it doesn't quite work out the way that it's intended sometimes. And sometimes it's, um, it's not an even distribution between the children. And to your point earlier, Kirk, about how that feels um, between siblings, <clears throat> the child that's doing all of the work maybe is receiving the exact same amount of money or maybe even a little less because they're mm-hmm. paying out of pocket for things and, and they're paying all these bills. So it's not the best way to proceed. It's definitely um, better to, if you have to name a child on it, to make sure that that child is listed for convenience only and not as a joint owner, unless your intention is that that child and only that child receive 100% of whatever's in that count as his or her gift or inheritance.
3: Yeah, so I me, mean, we, see, we yeah. see
1: this all the time. By the way, we see adult kids listed as on bank accounts, in particular, um, of their mom and dad. Yeah, but actually, but so let me think about that for a second. So, say like mom or dad had like fifty thousand dollars in a bank account, and one of the kids was
2: listed as, as joint owner.
1: So, That's at mom or dad's
2: dollars belongs to the one child.
1: Yeah. It's it. Half of it would like be included in the estate of mom or dad, right? No, No, it's not. It goes right. Oh,
2: okay. If it's it's a joint ownership with a right of survival, with that's what usually. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's an automatic survivorship feature built into that. Right. So if one of the joint owners on the account dies, either the child or the parent. I mean, that's why I have my crystal ball here, right? So, but theor- um, theoretically, Whoever dies, it's 100% yeah. owned by the other.
1: I mean, in conceptually anyway, then that son or daughter could slash would be
2: using the funds to pay expenses of the estate, but legally that wouldn't need to happen. Legally, it would not need to happen. And yeah. there are, are potential income tax consequences to the child because they just, that's their money now. Right. And so then if they're going to pay those expenses, it's really coming from their money, not from the estate of the parent who died. Yeah. So it's, yeah. you know, the intention is that the money be able yeah. to pay those expenses, but leaving it to a particular beneficiary rather than to the estate or to a trust would be a better plan. And that's, in that case, um, that's what you end up with.
3: Yeah. Uh, I mean, another issue to me that, that, uh, that's involved with that is if you do that and if the child you know is involved in a lawsuit then that money yes. is potentially um you know they, they can go after that correct
2: if that's a jointly owned account and that account is an asset of the, the other joint owner that would be subject to any kinds of claims of creditors possibly distribution in a divorce and so forth. So yes, absolutely. We we always have to think about when we wanna put an adult child on as a joint owner, what are the potential risks to that child?
3: Yeah. It's,
2: sometimes it's better to put children, if you, if you really do have a very basic situation, um, there's a bank account, let's say there are two adult children, they're both mature, responsible, long-term stable marriages, no concerns about um, spendthrift concerns or the kids making poor use of the money then, rather than naming one child as a joint owner, it's it's often preferable to name the, the two children as the beneficiaries, so that the account will pay on death or transfer yeah. on death. So we we say we put a POD or a TOD um, note on the account, so that then the bank will just issue the check directly to the beneficiaries, All right? In equal amounts. Can
1: I can I just come back to a, a, an estate that has significant debt for for a moment? Or oh, sorry, um, so. There's no, so if debt were to exceed assets of an estate, you said that there's no personal liability on any of the extended family members, right?
2: Probably. If if they're they're not, if they're not also jointly liable on the debt. So it depends on how the assets are titled. Okay.
1: Like if it was a spouse, then that wouldn't be the case, right? I'm assuming it's different for husband and wife than it is if
2: a mom died. It okay. depends because I can go take out a credit card in my name and not ask my, not. Right, right, right. Okay. Has the account. And yeah. can be Liable on it. So it really depends exactly how the particular account is owned and who okay. signed as being responsible for it.
1: And, and did you say that if an estate is insolvent, meaning debt exceeds the assets of the estate, then it doesn't
2: make sense to file with the courts? Is that what you said? It depends just, again. Okay. The oh, I can't get an answer out know, of you, No, it depends. <laughs> I mean, if there's real estate, somebody's going to deal with real estate. If we're talking about yeah. cash, is, is there a car we have to retitle? We might need letters from the court to be able to go to the registry of motor vehicles and change title. So it really depends what the assets are, but if the debts exceed the assets of the estate, then there's a priority, just like there's priority for appointment of who gets to serve as personal representative, there's a priority for payment of the debts. Okay. Um, And so that's where it's important to look at what are the particular debts. There's a major difference between secured debts like a mortgage oh, on real estate yeah. versus unsecured debt, like credit card debt, and okay. so obviously the secured debts are going to get paid first, paid and all first of that, that is coming after government, um, you know, taxes and and mass health and things like that.
1: Okay, so ask your attorney.
2: Yeah, ask your attorney.
1: <laughs> <laughs> get an attorney. Ask your attorney. Actually, one of the things we sort of skipped over that I was talking that I was, you know, thinking we would address at the beginning is, do you do you always need an attorney to go through this? Do, do people try to navigate this on their own? And are, are they, I, I know you're not working with those people, but are, can people be successful doing this without an attorney without a legal background?
2: Yeah. So- In Massachusetts, it is possible to file pro se on your own and go through the process. I would really not recommend that, and I am not saying that because I'm hoping to serve every single resident of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know that you have time for
1: that, Danielle. We've
0: already talked about how busy you are.
2: Yeah. Um, Well, so the you would think that really straightforward. There are all sorts of published guides and um, instructions for how to complete the forms that are available. And we as attorneys find those confusing Mm. and our paralegals find those confusing. And in addition to that, each county has slightly different procedural um, expectations. Let's say we're operating off the same set of uh, laws and statewide, we have a procedural guide, but county to county, there are nuances. So, in my practice, mm. we have county-specific checklists. Oh. We know oh, okay. that, for example, because we're, we're sitting right here in Hingham, uh, Cohasset is Norfolk, Hingham is Plymouth. You know, so we're in in both mm. counties equally. Um, sometimes we're in Suffolk or Middlesex. They all have their different requirements. Barnstable, um, Nantucket, you know, they're all different. So we wanna make sure that we're giving them exactly what they want, how they want it, in the right order. Because if we submit things in a way that doesn't want or expect, they will reject the entire thing and send it back or they'll hold it and ask for clarification, which will cause delays. So. Yes, it's possible to go it on your own. I really don't recommend it. If you start going down one path, um, there are three basic ways to proceed in the probate court. You can go with the voluntary administration if it's a very small estate, um, you can go with an informal administration if you satisfy those requirements, or you can go with a formal, um, the kind of full blown probate if you need that, or if that's preferable under the circumstances. So. If you were to start pro se and think you could proceed with a voluntary and then come to find out you can't, you really have to go formal. Or if you think you can go informal and you can't, and then you have to go formal, you're gonna pay the filing fees and complete all of the forms twice, which is not a good use of anybody's time or money. So it really is preferable to have the advice and counsel of someone who does this specific work because it's nuanced and detailed.
1: Yeah, I'm assuming it. I'm and assuming another. It makes, or, oh, go ahead. Sorry, your Wi Fi is breaking up a little I bit. I know. Before. I'm
2: sorry. I, I won't That's say the great. name of the company providing it. I'm <laughs> Come um, on, downtown hangout. Come on. Seriously. Yeah. Um uh, I, so in other states it's actually necessary or it may be necessary to have an attorney. So um I I had I oh, okay. hire an attorney licensed in the state where my brother died to help me with administering that oh. estate. And yeah. it's so different. It's been actually um it's so strange, you know, it's it's very obviously it's deeply personal to me, um, but it's also been academically interesting how very different all of the processes and procedures are state to state. So depending on where the person's located, that might matter as well and if there's property in another state I think we were going to talk about that that might lead to additional complications
1: save that for after the break we have like a minute or so before we have to take a break but just a quick question I'm assuming it makes sense for people when they ask me you know I need I need an attorney you know who do I go to I'm assuming it makes sense to kind of to start with the attorney that drafted the legal documents, assuming there was a will and a trust, potentially it's that drafted. It makes sense to start with that attorney in terms of settling the estate, assuming they're still in practice, right? And then if, they're, if for whatever reason that doesn't work, then look for another attorney. Is that generally what you'd recommend?
2: Often, yes, if the drafting attorney is holding the original will, if the drafting attorney has all the underlying financial information, has all the background family information, certainly that would make it a lot easier. So... would depend on how the drafting attorney's practice is structured and whether they have all that information kept in touch or if they did a will, you know, on a yeah. basic form years ago and haven't seen the person in for years. And okay. it probably all doesn't right. matter much.
1: All right. We'll talk about that after the break. You're listening to McNamara on Money. This is Danielle Van S. DGVE Law in Hingham. We're talking about the ins and outs of settling an estate after someone passes. I'm Alyssa McNamara-Reed, and we're just taking a quick break. We'll be right back.